Why is hydroxychloroquine, a generic drug, suddenly banned from use as a treatment for COVID-19? Were Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine complicit in fostering a fake study into the drug? What are the benefits of the use of this drug in the early stages of sickness? What acts of suppression and intimidation are faced by doctors who speak out on the medication? On this week's Global Research News Hour, part three of our special look into the COVID crisis, this week focusing on a breakthrough treatment that would, it is argued, save tens of thousands of lives if only government bodies and regulators would permit it. We'll hear from Dr. Jane Orient of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons about the crime against physicians. We'll hear from Dr. Merrill Nass, a physician for more than 40 years, about the process of keeping this treatment hidden and even defamed. And we'll hear from three doctors, Vladimir Zelenko, Martin Scholz, and Roland Derwan, who finished an original study concluding that their treatments have value as a solution. On this week's program, Coronavirus, a second look, part three. Hydroxychloroquine, a cure to be suppressed. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 9th, 2020. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. A recent study released by the Death Penalty Information Center, or DPIC, further exposes the link between race and criminal justice. The study comes at a critical conjuncture in the U.S. when millions have demonstrated and spoken out against the arbitrary use of lethal force involving police and vigilante contacts with African Americans and people of Latin American descent. The recrudescence of federal capital punishment is a ruthless byproduct of the ideological racism of the current administration. Trump built his 2016 presidential campaign through the targeting and denigration of immigrant workers, African Americans, women, and other oppressed groups. Yet, this stiffening of overt national discrimination and bigotry has prompted widespread opposition both domestically and internationally. That comes from the article, Racism and the Death Penalty. New study links mass incarceration, lethal police force, and capital punishment by Abeyomi Azekiwe, posted October 8th. Many powerful interests have combined to argue that science justifies the government-led initiatives to impose, for instance, economic lockdowns, social distancing, mandatory masking, 
and the future of compulsory vaccines. A growing international movement of people, however, is coming to see that the impositions being done in the name of fighting COVID-19 are not scientific at all. Instead, we are in the midst of a propaganda war aimed at inciting fear and even panic. Josh Mitteldorf has written an illuminating essay about this struggle over who really speaks on behalf of the scientific method. From his analysis, he concludes, quote, Never before 2020 have so few people with so little scientific credentials claimed to speak for the scientific community as a whole, and never has the public been asked to modify our daily lives and sacrifice our livelihoods on such a scale, unquote. That comes from the article, Assaulting Science in the Name of Science, Exploring the Coronavirus Crisis of 2020, by Professor Anthony J. Hall, posted October 8th. In his new book, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State, Vine starts with a simple premise. U.S. military bases around the world, from Diego Garcia to Djibouti, are nuts and bolts in the war machine itself. Military bases provide the logistical supply and combat support that has allowed the United States to turn the whole world into its battlefield. They make conflict more likely, and then more wars lead to more military bases in a vicious cycle of expansion and empire. Put another way, Vine writes, bases frequently beget wars, which can beget more bases, which can beget more wars, and so on. That comes from the article, U.S. military bases are key pieces of the global war machine, by Sarah Lazar, Posted October 8th, originally published at Jacobin. If you spoke out against racism in the 1920s, you would have been shunned and ridiculed, if you were lucky. We know that many brave people, both black and white, lost property, limbs, and life standing up for racial equality. In contrast, people protesting racism today are hardly going against the majority. Most people agree Racism is bad, even the once racist media and government. Yet with COVID-19, the majority of people believe in the hoax and applaud the governments for stripping them of their civil liberties, a view backed by every TV, radio, and Wi-Fi connection. That comes from the article, Resisting Corona, New Normal Oppression. Every civil rights movement begins with a shunned 5% by John C.A. Manley, posted October 8th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. There is a concern across Canada, the United States, Western Europe, and much of the world that the dreadful virus resulting in unprecedented levels of draconian measures is a major menace to humanity and that only a vaccine someday will be effective in eliminating the threat that it poses. But little or no attention is being paid to a treatment which is being applauded and applied by more and more doctors. 
Harvey Risch, for example, is professor of epidemiology at the renowned Yale University School of Public Health. In an article published by Francois, he said the following, As a professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health, I have authored more than 300 peer-reviewed publications and currently hold leadership positions on the editorial boards of several leading journals. I'm used to advocating positions within the medical establishment, so I was disconcerted to find that in the midst of a crisis, I had to fight for a treatment that was fully supported by the data, but for reasons unrelated to a proper understanding of the science, was sidelined. As a result, tens of thousands of COVID-19 patients are dying needlessly. Fortunately, the situation can be reversed easily and quickly. I'm talking, of course, about the drug, hydroxychloroquine. Significant actions are being taken to suppress the truth about this drug. In the U.S., an organization known as the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons launched a lawsuit against the Food and Drug Administration in June to end its arbitrary interference with the use of hydroxychloroquine. Jane Orient is a physician out of Tucson, Arizona, and the executive director of AAPS. I asked her about the lawsuit and about her reaction to the FDA arguing from the standpoint of playing safe in the face of questions that have arisen about the drug. Well, they're not playing it safe at all. This drug has been found to be safe 65 years ago. It has been used by hundreds of millions of patients worldwide for malaria, for lupus, for rheumatoid arthritis, and for dozens of a couple dozen anyway, additional implicate, uh, additional indications. The, um, once the FDA approves the drug as safe, you do not have to go through the safety tests again for every new indication. Uh, you can spend millions of dollars to try to get a new indication on the label, but why do that? All it does is gives the drug company the ability to advertise for that indication. And nobody's going to be advertising hydroxychloroquine anyway because it's so cheap and it's out of patent. So there is just no reason. Um, and maybe as many as half of all drugs that are prescribed are prescribed for off-label indications. Hydroxychloroquine is one of the safest drugs that we have. It has been available over the counter in many countries. It's safer than most of the drugs that we have over the counter here. Safer than aspirin, safer than Benadryl, safer than Tylenol. Like any drug, you could overdose it on it. There are very rare side effects. The rheumatologists, when they prescribe it for lupus and people are going to be on it daily for years, they don't bother to check electrocardiograms. They do recommend that the patients get their eyes checked every five years because there can be some retinal problems after prolonged use. Um, there have been studies, and there was a recent paper that showed, reviewed all these studies showing that if anything, hydroxychloroquine protects your heart, that people who are taking it have fewer heart problems than those who don't. It may pro prolong the QT interval on your EKG, but some 30 drugs do that. And as far as the amount of, that it prolongs it, hydroxychloroquine is kind of right, right in the middle. COVID-19 itself can do that. And the infection in your heart causes arrhythmias all by itself. I mean, anybody who's got a, a severe case needs to be on a heart monitor anyway. 
and hydroxychloroquine is, is not going to change the need. You still need to monitor the patient, whether or not he's taking that drug. Well, part of this uh, lawsuit is also about the way that government uh, or regulators are interfering with patient care. Uh, how does this uh, holding back a drug officially because you're not satisfied with the sa safety, uh, in their say, equal but, interference with a physician who may not think it's so safe, dangerous? That's a very interesting question because the FDA is really talking out of both sides of its mouth. Stephen Hahn, the commissioner, said, oh, it's not our fault if doctors don't prescribe the drug. They're perfectly free to do that legally. But the FDA has made very influential statements saying there's no proof that it will work for this and it might do harm. And following up on that, many state boards of pharmacy and state medical boards have passed very restrictive and threatening rules that, that make doctors in many states very reluctant to prescribe this. Okay, well, just to, to point to an example, I mean, they have the drug Remdesivir. Uh, it's a patented drug. It's supported by Anthony Fauci. Uh, has it gone through a fundamentally different treatment than the FDA? Oh, absolutely. When they, when they ask for an emergency use authorization for remdesivir, I think they requested it at 1130 at night, and they had it half an hour later at midnight. And yet this drug has, has not been extensively tested. It is known to have serious toxicities, including kidney failure. It has, the studies that are underway show that it may decrease the length of your hospital stay by four days, but it does not decrease mortality measurably. Maybe there was a later study that showed it might have a slight effect on mortality, but if you survive, you might get better a little faster. But it's very expensive, at least $3,000, a negotiated government price for a course of treatment, whereas hydroxychloroquine costs about 20. Not 20,000, $20. Yeah. Um, I was also wondering, uh, going back to the interference in the physician doing their duties, um, could you give us a couple of examples of, of how the ordinary doctors uh, were dealt with abusively uh, as a result of being outspoken on this uh, HCP issue? Well, some doctors in, in Texas particularly have been investigated by the medical board. I believe even a doctor in Minnesota, who's also a legislator, was investigated by the medical board for prescribing this drug off-label, um, saying, you know, it's not been shown to proven to be effective. Well, in probably only less than 10% of the official guidelines from strategic or from very sophisticated, um, respected uh, medical organizations like the American College of Cardiology, only about 8% of their guidelines are supported by randomized controlled trials by that level of evidence. There, I mean, there are many, many observational trials on hydroxychloroquine, even in COVID-19, that are have favorable results, particularly if used early. The evidence for this is stronger than the evidence for a lot of things that are are on the official guidelines. Are there any other uh, issues you'd like to uh, raise briefly before we close? I think we need to, to recognize that 
despite what we doctors have been telling patients for eons, viral diseases may well be treatable, not just COVID-19, but other viruses, there's plenty of, of both laboratory evidence and even clinical trial evidence that early use of antibiotics, antiparasitic drugs, antimalarial drugs like hydroxychloroquine might be of benefit. There's also plenty of evidence that taking adequate doses of vitamin D and zinc are protective, not just against COVID-19, but against all types of uh, respiratory viruses. And we may get interested again in doing some engineering, things like um, using ultraviolet light to help sterilize air spaces. So I think, I think that maybe we will learn something from this about viral diseases in general, about the importance of at-home early treatment, not just say, well, go home, drink some water, take some Tylenol, and call me if you can't breathe. I think that it's just really sort of a disgrace to the medical profession, but that's how we have been approaching patients who have something that may be a very mild disease, but could be very, very serious. That was Tucson, Arizona-based physician Jane Orient, the executive director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. There has been a massive campaign in the United States and around the world to thwart a hydroxychloroquine treatment for COVID. The extent to which both politicians and the media are complicit appears to be formidable. To get a good understanding of the battle plan, I got hold of Dr. Merrill Nass. She is a physician, board certified in internal medicine with over 40 years of experience. She also has a blog, Anthrax Vaccine, and she writes for Global Research. Here she talks about where hydroxychloroquine first came under attack. The first excuse that was used to claim it was unsafe was that it could cause cardiac arrhythmias and theoretically sudden death. Well, the drug can do something called widening the QT interval on an EKG, but many drugs, at least 30 other drugs that are commonly used, also do that. And it was not really shown that the drug, despite the, making these changes on the EKG, it wasn't shown that it caused dangerous cardiac arrhythmias. And in fact, COVID-19 itself in advanced stages can cause those very same cardiac arrhythmias. So it, it is likely that the claims, the initial claims that it caused them uh, were made because COVID had actually caused them. Subsequently, there's been three papers published by cardiologists looking at the cardiac risks from the drug, and they are minimal, if any, compared to other drugs. So the WHO started a clinical trial for, in many different countries, over 40 different countries, to look at many drugs that might be useful for COVID. And initially, they did not want to use hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, but subsequently in March decided to add them. But they recommended a dose that was approximately four times higher than is ever used in clinical practice for any other conditions. And, th and these drugs are known to have what's called a narrow therapeutic index or narrow therapeutic window, which means if you dose in a narrow range, they are effective and good and safe, but if you dose outside that narrow range, you rapidly induce toxicity. 
And you can then, with high doses, induce those cardiac arrhythmias that I talked about. You can cause um, serious low blood sugar, maybe psychiatric um, effects. And so it's a drug that most doctors who use it know you, you stick within that narrow area where the drug is safe. WHO went way outside that therapeutic index, gave people a toxic dose, and many people in the trial died that were given hydroxychloroquine. So you're saying that the WHO, they deliberately assume that you'll over, overdose, and uh, you know, if you overdose, then you're going to go into different uh, fields. They overdose the patients. What made them overdose the patients is unclear. They had um, a committee form to determine the dose, and they had uh, a variety of people attend meetings, but the minutes of those meetings don't, at, you know, it seems like uh, the discussions of dose may have been expunged from the meeting minutes. Also, the, the British started a very large trial throughout Britain in almost all hospitals called the recovery trial. And they too use these same massive doses and had you know, similar results. So in a, in a trial arm where there were over 1,500 patients, 396 in the hydroxychloroquine arm died. So over 25% that received hydroxychloroquine died that were in hospital. Um, there were a couple of other trials that have also used these very high doses. Um, one was in Brazil. They stopped that trial after 13 days because they noticed they were having a high number of deaths. That was in April. But these other trials continued some until June. The, the WHO and the British trials continued till June and some um, may be ongoing. Anyway, uh, in the United States, a variety of efforts were made to stop physicians using these drugs, and they were odd. Um, they, they were things I've never seen before in medicine, and I've been a doctor for 40 years. So in New Jersey, the public affairs department of the state you know, issued a, a declaration that the drug couldn't be used for COVID. In my state, the governor issued um, a directive that it couldn't be used for prevention. Um, in Michigan, the Board of Licensure of Medicine uh, put out a statement that doctors could be investigated if they used it because it was not an approved therapy. So um, about half the states uh, or more issued various types of rulings to prevent doctors from using the drug, particularly at the onset of illness when it is believed to be most effective. In May, there were a couple of studies that particularly affected the perception of hydroxychloroquine, putting out data that caused authorities and media to abandon it. Merrill Nass explains that the study was a deception. So what, what will probably turn out to be one of the most famous frauds in medical science, but hasn't yet, is a paper that was published in The Lancet on May 22nd 
by four authors, one of whom was, was a Harvard professor, the first author, a full professor, cardiologist. Um, and the second author was a, an up-and-coming 40-year-old um, vascular surgeon who had a company called Surgisphere. And the paper claimed to be, to be based on a database that this young vascular surgeon, Dr. Sapan Desai, owned and that the database was connected to 671 hospitals on six continents and was obtaining basically all their medical records in real time, uh, processing the medical records from many languages <clears throat> and coming up with data that could be smooth and um, was more massive in terms of a database of uh, almost 100,000 patients that had been hospitalized with COVID around the world. And, they, and almost 15,000 of those patients, were, it was claimed, had received hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine for treatment. And it was claimed that in that group, there were considerably higher death rates, about 35%, depending you know, how you look. So essentially, um, the Sipan Desai made all this information up and published it in the New England Journal and, and in the Lancet. And one would think that those two, those are the two most read medical journals, most valued medical journals in the entire world. And so how, you, how they even got into those journals, of course the Harvard professor helped, and, and how they got through peer review within the journal is, is very questionable. I mean, how does such a thing happen? Anyway, this, this claim was, was widely, the Lancet put out press releases, it was widely spread that hydroxychloroquine can kill you, or chloroquine. And almost every major media outlet in the Western world published this. But people started to investigate and come up with reasons why this database was, was fake. And um, after attempts to, to sort of dig their heels in at the Lancet, finally after 13 days, they had, the owner, Sipan Desai, uh, would not allow independent auditors to look at his data and the whole thing crumbled. And nobody really apologized Nobody admitted that the data was faked. Nobody admitted they had done anything wrong. And the story was basically buried. It looks like, you know, you can't go after the Lancet. You can't go after Sapandasai, at least at this point. And the, the idea that it was dangerous was allowed to stand. And I can tell you, my own patients, when I tell them, I can give them hydroxychloroquine if they develop COVID and they don't need to be so terrified. They come to me and they say, isn't, you know, isn't that the drug that could kill me? Isn't that the drug Trump, uh, you know, touted? And, and isn't he wrong about everything? So they're, my patients are still frightened to use it. Dr. Simone Gold and the American Frontline Doctors Summit, which featured a group of doctors demanding access to hydroxychloroquine, started generating millions of encounters on Facebook and on YouTube. Those media dropped the video on the grounds it was violating COVID-19 misinformation policies. 
I asked Merrill Nass about the extent to which physicians in America pay a heavy price for hydroxychloroquine advocacy. Well, Simone Gold, who was one of the leaders of the frontline doctors and has, has written a white paper on, on the chloroquine drugs for COVID, lost her job. Um, the, uh, in Britain, the authorities wrote to all the doctors and pointed out that you were, if you prescribed this, you were prescribing it off-label and you could get into trouble. Um, uh, the Texas Medical Board was investigating Stella Emanuel for, for uh, touting the drug. And interestingly enough, in Minnesota, Scott Jensen, who's a doctor, but he's also a member of the legislature, had said good things about this drug um, on social media and maybe in interviews. And anonymous complaints to the medical board led to an um, investigation in which he could have lost his license. But he, he had also uh, been uh, given an award like the best family medicine doctor in Minnesota in a recent year. And um, that would have been unprecedented to have a doctor lose their license because of something they said outside of the office. I mean, it had nothing to do with treating a patient. You know, it wasn't a, a felony. Uh, you know, you lose your license if you create a, commit a felony. Uh, so anyway, he was investigated, but he, he was let off. But doctors are very frightened. In, in, as I said, in many states, it's illegal. If, if, if I were in New York City and wrote a prescription for a patient to get hydroxychloroquine, um, the pharmacy would not be allowed to fill it. And in some states, I think Michigan, the pharmacy would be required to report me to the authorities for having written that prescription. Wow. These are all unprecedented things in medicine. We just heard from Dr. Merrill Nass, a doctor based in Maine and a writer for Anthrax Vaccine and Global Research. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. From March to June of this year, a study was conducted and concluded the benefits were extraordinary. I got hold of the three scientists to discuss the report. Dr. Roland Derwang is a German medical doctor and life science industry expert. Professor Martin Scholz is an independent consultant and an adjunct professor for experimental medicine at Heinrich Hein University in Dusseldorf. Germany, and joining us from New York City is Vladimir Zelenko, a primary care physician. Dr. Zelenko, describe the background. First of all, I wasn't doing a study. I was practicing clinical medicine. I'm a primary care physician for a community upstate New York that uh, has 35,000 people that lived within a square mile. And when COVID hit in early March, um, it spread throughout the entire community, and we had the thousands of uh, acutely ill patients. So it's not that I chose COVID, COVID chose me because I was an outpatient physician dealing with a uh, you know, epidemic in my community. And at that point in time, uh, there was no recommendations for outpatient treatment except uh, fluids and Tylenol go home. And when you get really sick, go to the hospital and we'll intubate you. So that was the, that was the paradigm for treatment of COVID 
when I was forced to deal with it. So um, I started uh, experimenting, so to speak, with different treatment options based on some um, research that I did on how other countries were uh, treating COVID, um, the Far East and and um, in France. Um, actually, there's a MedCram, it's a educational a CME um, educational program on YouTube. And there was an episode, MedCram um, 34. I think that saved the world because um, that's where I became aware of uh, the theoretical uh, basic science of how zinc inhibits uh, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase or replicase. And then the, the pr problem of zinc entering the cell and then the role of hydroxychloroquine in allowing for zinc to, in, to be a zinc ionophore to let zinc into the cell. So that was, that was very intriguing to me. And then when I saw that in, in China and South Korea, they were using zinc and hydroxychloroquine. And when I saw that Dudier Raoul in Marseille, France was using azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine, but they were all doing it in, in patients. And um, I was dealing with a completely different uh, perspective, which is uh, patients that are in the early stage one of the infectious process, they're not that sick. And I was looking for an intervention that would uh, mitigate their symptoms and, and disease course and prevent them from ending up in the hospital. But that's how I got involved. And when I saw that the results were, were remarkable, meaning people just stopped going to the hospital, they were surviving. So I made a, um, started making some noise. I made a YouTube video addressed to the president of the United States. Actually, I have to ask my 17 year old son to do it because I don't know how to make YouTube videos. <laughs> and, uh, and I made an appeal to the president. And the next day his chief of staff, Mark Meadows reached out to me and they were interested in what I was doing. And then a few days later, Stephen Hahn, the commissioner of the FDA reached out to me. Um, and then that led to Rudy Giuliani and I did some podcasts and then it just exploded. Um, I'm not sure how um, Roland and Martin actually heard of me initially, but when they did, they emailed me um, and we offered to help me because I'm not a researcher, I'm a, I'm a clinician. And they offered to uh, work with me, collaborate with me and to bring my um, data to the world, and I was very happy uh, and grateful to them, um, and I learned a lot from them actually. So um, that's that's my perspective of how um, the collaboration evolved. So Roland and um, Roland Derwand and uh, Martin Schultz, how did the uh, this doctor, how did his work come to your attention? Yeah, Michael, maybe I can start uh, Roland here. Um, um, that was really very interesting um, uh, because uh, beginning of the year when more, let's say, research uh, was coming out concerning COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 infections, um, um, of course, I mean, you read a lot, uh, etc., um, uh, thinking a lot about um, possible approaches in terms of treatment or, or risk factors concerning um, uh, certain patient populations. 
and more or less almost in parallel when Seth Selenko started um, uh, to treat patients uh, with uh, this triple therapy, um, Martin and I, um, uh, we wrote a hypothesis paper based uh, on existing data and uh, established knowledge that uh, the combination of hydroxychloroquine and zinc might be beneficial in the treatment of COVID-19 patients as uh, Seth just explained, um, because hydroxychloroquine uh, acts as a zinc ionophore, increasing the intracellular concentrations and thus uh, inhibiting the replication um, of the virus. And when we published our paper as preprint, um, uh, and uh, it is already published also as a peer-reviewed version now, we were indeed contacted by a US journalist in Washington. And um, uh, he more or less then also so put um, Seth Selenko in CC and his emails and facilitated the contact. And that was then the time when I discussed with Martin um, and when Martin indeed um, uh, sent an email um, uh, to Seth. But uh, Martin, do you have um, maybe to add anything here? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I just uh, would like to add that um, Roland as a medical doctor he, uh, and, and I, we know each other for a long time, and I, I am interested in the immunology and the virology part, and uh, Roland as a medical doctor in the medical part. So uh, this is why Roland called me one night, uh, Sunday night, and asked me to uh, put together a publication about this a combination of zinc and uh, hydroxychloroquine, which does make a lot of sense because of out of immunological reasons, and of antiviral reasons, and so the two things together seem to make us a lot of uh, a lot of sense. And uh, we started with the hypothesis, as Roland pointed out right now. Okay. Well, you uh, with your study, you you basically split up uh, your patients into three groups. Um, anyone who was not risk stratified, meaning there's no risk of going to the doctor uh, or going to the hospital or or dying, are excluded. Um, Basically, could you explain what the data at the end of the day revealed? Sure. I just want to give you a general overview of what, what's, um, oh, please. what the protocol is. It's not the drugs, per se. The drugs are part of it, but it's a, it's a concept. The concept is early intervention, not wait until uh, the viral load is out of control. Um, and then early intervention in the right patient population, which is the high-risk population. The way I figured out who the high-risk population was, I was looking, who, who do they bury? And I saw there was people over the age of 60 uh, or people younger than the age of 60, but they had medical problems. And that's it. Everyone else was getting better without any intervention. So we said, okay, this is not, this virus doesn't pick on everyone equally. So because just out of lack of resources, I had to triage, and it really was triage because, I mean, my office was seeing hundreds of patients a day and half my staff was sick and uh, all the radiology places were closed. The hospitals were at full capacity. So <laughs> this was like a bomb went off. So I started picking out the high-risk patients. Um, I started in intervening even before PCR results came in, just based on clinical symptoms uh, because it's easy to diagnose. And then I used those three drugs, doxycycline, zinc, and azithromycin. But the, the, the main component here, and it's, you just saw that the president himself, he was treated early. 
unlike the recommendations all over the world, go home and take Tylenol, and when you get sick, go home, go to the hospital. That wasn't done in his case, right? Because early intervention is key. Um, now, my results basically, uh, I'm just going to give you um, overall what the paper showed, but that's only a subset of my patients. The paper was specifically written in a way where we only used patients that had definitive laboratory confirmatory um, proof of COVID. Otherwise, it, the data would not have been uh, accepted based on clinical diagnosis. So that it's a, it's a subset of my general patients and it showed an 84% reduction in uh, hospitalizations when compared to a, a control group that's comparable um, that was not treated. Um, and the p-values, I'm sure my colleagues will, uh, it was statistically significant, let's put it that. Yeah. That's what the paper showed. So the data at the end, I mean, maybe you could even put some, just some numerics because we can see the, the chart for those treated versus those who are untreated. Um, what, what at the end of the day comes, makes clear, is made clear by the study? Seth, do you want to start? Um, well, yeah, uh, if you treat early, um, we had an 84% reduction in hospitalization. And you do not have to treat all the patients with hydroxychloroquine. Based on the risk stratification, less than 40% of the patients uh, Seth Selenko saw in his practice or via telemedicine were only treated with the triple therapy. So not all the patients need to be treated, um, uh, keeping also the principle in mind to do no harm, right? Um, uh, I mean, we still have to be sure that medications and drugs are used for the right patients. And uh, here, um, uh, this, this principle was uh, applied um, by help of the risk stratification, number one. Number two, um, then um, these patients were treated uh, uh, after four days of first symptom onset, as Seth already explained. And then hydroxychloroquine was used, let's say, uh, in a rather low dose when you compare it um, with other studies. And this is probably very critical for the drug um, because um, in, uh, in critical care, usually, for example, hospitalized patients, patients being admitted to ICU, you rather want to use drugs with short half-life. But indeed, hydroxychloroquine has a very long terminal elimination half-life of 32 days in plasma and 50 days in blood. And um, Seth used a much lower dose than in uh, comparison to other studies. Seth, do you want to comment maybe on the dose and on other studies? Sure. I mean, again, I, I did modify the dosing compared to what was being done uh, in other countries simply because they were treating inpatients and I'm treating um, outpatients that are not that sick. So I decided to tweak the dosing um, to reflect less acutely ill patients uh, because of the do no harm component, um, even though the drugs are extremely safe. Um, so that's how that evolved. And I used uh, basically 200 milligrams of hydroxychloroquine uh, twice a day for five days. What exactly, I mean, what's going on here? Is it the hydrochloroquine that's, uh, I mean, in, in these three, 
ethromycin and uh, zinc and hydrochloroquine, what exactly, how do they work together, at least according to your hypothesis? Martin, do you want to answer? Yes, um, I can start uh, to try to explain this. Um, as as uh, we mentioned before, the, uh, the therapy, the combination has an impact on the an uh, antiviral effects, uh, has anti an antiviral effects. And this was known for a long time in, uh, in experimental uh, settings, for instance. And um, the uh, zinc is also well known for decades uh, as an antiviral agent. And uh, the um, uh, recent, recent publication showed that uh, zinc is increasing the pH value in intracellular compartments. Uh, which are important for the antiviral, uh, for, for the viral replication. And the same does, uh, similar mechanisms are, um, are affected by hydroxychloroquine. So uh, this seems to, um, these two drugs seem to um, be, um, uh, to have a synergy in order to fight uh, the, the, the virus intracellularly. And uh, in addition, both drugs or both compounds are uh, known to have um, anti-inflammatory effects, which means, and this is well known uh, for other viral diseases, that uh, also for influenza, that people um, suffer from the severe inflammation, especially in the lungs, um, although the virus might not be there any, anymore. So the inflammation um, is sometimes in, uh, the more severe aspect of the uh, pathology. And so, um, in, in our opinion, uh, the combination of this antiviral effects and the co in, in, in addition to the anti-inflammatory effects might uh, be the, uh, the reason for the success of this combination therapy. And the acitromycin is an antibiotic, which is used for, the, uh, uh, for possible uh, bacterial um, infections which come um, after the viral uh, infection, uh, for instance. And, and Michael, may I just add what is also interesting um, uh, in this uh, uh, combination is, is uh, that many patients at, at high risk uh, dependent on age, comorbidities like diabetes and also co-medication um, uh, like the, uh, diuretics um, or ACE inhibitors um, show uh, up with zinc deficiencies. Um, and as Martin mentioned, zinc in general is important for the immunity. And there's a lot of data or was a lot of data generated during the last decades, also for elderly patients, that zinc supplementation up to 50 milligrams of elemental zinc as uh, SF um, uh, uh, was using here um, for these patients um, um, is beneficial in terms of uh, prevention, for example, of the common cold. And many of the high-risk patients, at least in the Western world, in general, up to 50% have a zinc deficiency um, and also based on co-medications used to treat their comorbidities. So, of course, um, let's say there's not a lot of evidence there, but this was part of our hypothesis and what we discussed also in the first hypothesis paper we published. Now, uh, your research is undergoing peer review. Have you heard any criticism of late of the study? 
Um, uh, I mean, the the study is uh, published on the preprint server since beginning yeah. of uh, July, and there are many uh, comments and and also good comments and remarks. And uh, also, we went back to the manuscript and and um, uh, revised some aspects already. Then uh, it was of course submitted uh, to a journal for peer review. Um, we got very constructive comments back um, uh, by the reviewers. Uh, let's say. Um, uh, and um, uh, so we also finished then these revisions and at the moment the peer review process um, is still ongoing. But this was expected also concerning the timelines. Um, um, at the moment rather the peer reviews are faster, um, but we still have to wait for the final feedback. But that's a, a common process, let's say. Yeah, there's a tendency to block this approach in, in favor of vaccines and, and perhaps more pharmaceutical based technology and and this is having an effect on the acceptance of this cocktail within the medical establishment the who and and of course the media i'd like each of you in turn to comment on some of the criticism or or even outlandish treatment perhaps that uh, your research may be getting yeah. i don't know seth do you want to start us sure um i don't want to get into the politics i can just tell you that a lot of the criticism of um namely hydroxychloroquine, is unfounded. It's propaganda, really. Uh, there's, not, there's no basis for it. And the data that they're using to, uh, to uh, justify their criticism is flawed data. So for example, the Lancet study that uh, was the basis for the WHO to put a moratorium against hydroxychloroquine usage uh, was, uh, uh, what's the word? It was taken, it was, um, What's the word? Retracted, I'm sorry. It was retracted for fraud. And um, the F FDA, who removed the emergency use authorization um, for hydroxychloroquine, used this Lancet study um, as the basis for the uh, withdrawal after even it was uh, retracted for fraud. <laughs> they used the fraudulent study to remove the emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. The recovery trial that was funded by Oxford used lethal homicidal dosage, hydroxychloroquine, 2,400 milligrams a day. All that proved is that if you give toxic dosage of medication, you'll kill a patient. Um, the solidarity trial uh, used five times the recommended doses. Um, the VA trial was on patients who were in the hospital for more than 17 days in the ICU intubated. Um, and, and many of the trials just use hydroxychloroquine without zinc. So they were all designed to fail or poorly designed. Um, so the criticism, in my opinion, of hydroxychloroquine is completely unfounded. I spoke to a, a group of electrophysiologists in America by way of WhatsApp. There are only 3,000 electrophysiologists in America. And um, they were queried um, if any, any of them had seen any negative outcomes, namely Tersad's, um, using hydroxychloroquine and zinc. And the answer was, in the entire country, zero negative outcomes, with, a, with the caveat of outside of the ICU, uh, which I never advocated for its use in the ICU. Um, so that's interesting. And if you look at the package insert on remdesivir, um, which is being wildly uh, promoted, 6% of the patients 
that take remdesivir develop atrial fibrillation, which is a cardiac uh, dangerous arrhythmia that may lead to strokes. Um, so <laughs> the hypocrisy here is, is incredible. Uh, that hydroxychloroquine, which has been around for 65 years, um, it's used for um, rheumatological diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. It's used for malaria, malaria prophylaxis. It's given to pregnant women, nursing mothers, children um, currently, and it's been demonized for not being safe um, while it's still being uh, recommended the same medication for those above mentioned conditions. Again, it's hypocrisy, it's propaganda, and um, what the root causes of that at this point is not that important. What is important is that we spread the awareness that there is an effective uh, therapeutic approach in stage one in the early uh, stages of COVID that uh, significantly impacts clinical outcome, 84% reduction in hospitalization, and will significantly, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> contribute to the end of this pandemic. Maybe what, what I would add, um, uh, and, and Seth already started to explain about um, the status of hydroxychloroquine. I mean, it's, it's listed as an essential medication uh, for lupus uh, by the World Health Organization. And before the pandemic, nobody was questioning the safety of hydroxychloroquine. I mean, imagine in the year 2017, there were 5.6 million prescriptions done in the United States and hydroxychloroquine was the 128th most commonly prescribed medication. Um, but what does it mean? I mean, at the beginning, of course, um, the drug was used in uh, severely ill patients. Um, um, uh, I, I think that was not a surprise. I mean, uh, physicians uh, were looking for solutions. And I think it was also important um, that these studies, even when they failed, that these studies were done. Why? I mean, what we need specifically um, under these circumstances and in this pandemic is good and solid research. But what have we learned? We have learned that in severely ill patients um, uh, in the ICU, maybe on a ventilator, hydroxychloroquine in monotherapy and especially in high doses is not working. It is not beneficial for these patients. And we see this in other therapeutic areas as well. But this does not mean that this data can, um, uh, let's say, be used um, uh, to tell physicians there is no benefit in the early stage of the disease, in outpatients, um, at lower dosages, and in different combinations. And coming back to the point of good research um, in this situation where nobody has experience with, um, I think when this uh, um, uh, data was coming out or data from um, uh, practices like Sefcilenko was coming out um, with, uh, of course, or based not on a controlled study on the one hand, um, uh, but with huge treatment effects, when new studies were designed and also started uh, also in the U.S., um, in my opinion, it would have been important that, for example, a study would have been done in combination with zinc and in a different patient population to find out um, is this a real um, effect and benefit and to which extent, and not to say, okay, we failed in severely ill patients 
And for that reason, uh, we do not do any research anymore on other patient populations. Also, we don't know um, if the drug perhaps is still beneficial in these patients. So that is for me a, a big issue um, concerning the science and research that is done. Um, and this affects any area, right? I mean, you mentioned vaccines, you mentioned other treatments. In all these areas, we need solid research um, to learn about the efficacy, but also about the safety of uh, these treatments, um, uh, vaccinations, or whatever it is. Okay, I just have one last question I'd like to ask. I mean, I'm from Canada, and uh, in this country, uh, it's been as hostile to the dissemination of hydroxychloroquine as anywhere else. I was wondering if any of you have a, a story to share about uh, how this is affecting lives in my country. Well, I do. I have a patient that um, in New York who has family in Montreal. And um, so a pregnant woman from Montreal in her late 20s, she was uh, 20 weeks pregnant uh, or so, uh, reached out to me. And she said that she was diagnosed with COVID. Um, she has a bad cough and fever. If, if it's uh, okay for her to um, take my protocol. I said to her, yes, I think it's uh, a very good idea. She went to her, her doctor. The doctor forbade her from taking it. Didn't give her a prescription. Uh, four or five days later, she had a massive pulmonary embolism and uh, two bilateral strokes. Um, she lost a baby, and she's on a respirator for four months. You just heard from Roland Dervoil, Martin Scholz, and Vladimir Zelenko, all authors of the paper COVID-19 Outpatients, Early Risk Stratified Treatment with Zinc Plus Low Dose Hydroxychloroquine and Azithromycin, a retrospective case series study. You can read the study at the website www.thezelenkoprotocol.com. Earlier in the week, I had applied for an interview with someone from Health Canada on its denial of hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for COVID-19. I was declined, but they sent me a statement. It said essentially that hydroxychloroquine's ability to prevent, treat, or cure COVID-19 has not been proven to Health Canada, nor have their benefits been proven to outweigh the risks. Also said that no manufacturer submitted hydroxychloroquine as treatment for COVID, and therefore it hasn't been approved. Clinical trials are underway to explore the drug's worth for treating the disease. While a substantial number of physicians in the U.S. and around the world have some hope for radically reducing deaths from COVID, if hydroxychloroquine is implemented in the first five days of treatment, the listener should be aware that this treatment is not necessarily for everyone. We encourage you to bring it to the attention of a healthcare professional before you ascertain that this antiviral treatment is right for you. That's all for this week's show. Join us next week when we will review the unknown factors around the plan to develop a vaccine treatment. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear the show every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. Also podcast at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. My name is Michael Welch. Take care and stay tuned for your next radio broadcast.